John Barnett here, and welcome to our study of Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, right behind me, uh, the 52 greatest chapters. That's what FTGC means for those of you that are just here for the first time. You're actually in the 44th of 52 weeks of going through the entire Bible by examining and studying and, and summarizing the key chapters, the key doctrines, uh, and all of the background that surrounds those. Uh, the chapter we're studying is Hebrews 10. Uh, part of this study is to summarize the chapter uh, in just a phrase, a sentence, or, or some brief statement. And I wrote uh, that Hebrews 10 is about the only sacrifice for sin. And the emphasis there is the only, because that's what Satan's religion is trying to uh, obfuscate and confuse people about. Religion makes humans try and find their own way to God. And that really resonates in the time we live. Everybody wants to kind of do it their own way. And there's such individualism. God said, no, I, don't, I would not like any individualism. I don't want your own way. There is one way. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And that's Jesus Christ and his only, one and only sacrifice for sin. So that's the first half. The second half is the job that God has for each of us who come to know his son, the Lord Jesus, the job he has for us to do. And what I love so much is, and Bonnie and I started this morning, we were praying for you. Uh, after studying all week long and reading through this passage and writing things down in our notes and everything, I said to Bonnie, I said, this chapter has blessed me personally. In fact, a little bit later, I'm going to talk about how the Lord actually changed my life in, uh, when I was in Bible school uh, through memorizing uh, Hebrews 9 and 10. And, and I'll tell you about that. So it's blessed my life. It's blessed our life as a couple, all the different truths in this chapter. But it's really been a tool God has used through us in ministry to others. So that's what I want to share. Uh, real quickly, um, our job that I talk about here, I'm going to go through in detail. It's us getting used to uh, what God's looking for in our lives. God wants us to stir up those around us to love and to good works. And how do you do that? You ask them what they're eating. Uh, what are you reading in the word to feed upon your soul? Uh, what are you chewing on? What are you memorizing and meditating upon to transform your life? The way God changes us, the way he chips away, kind of like the master sculptor, the block of stone. What he uses is his word that first we eat and then we mentally learn how to chew it up, how to digest it through memorizing a passage and then meditating upon it. Then breathing, uh, it, it's kind of like uh, if a person's alive, they're breathing, you know, you, uh, they can be alive and not be eating at the moment. They can be alive and not be chewing at the moment, but, but you're looking and trying, you know, people are checking if you're breathing and if not, they take extreme measures. Well, breathing is the indication of endless life and that's our prayers, our connection to God. And what are you asking God to do through your life? That's what we're just seeking uh, him through prayer, the Lord, and saying, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to live today? How can I best invest my life? And then finally, the fourth area of our job is, uh, who are you seeking to share the gospel with this week? So if you were sitting across the table, do you remember how this started? 52 uh, week study. I said, I would like to meet you at Panera or Starbucks or, you know, Chipotle for lunch. I want you to bring your Bible. I want you to bring your notebook. I'm going to sp speak to you surveying a chapter, and then I'm going to launch you to study it all week long. And then we're going to come back and discuss it the next week. And I want to hear what, what God taught you and worked in your life and showed you. But if you were sitting across from that table, I would say to you, what are you eating? Where are you reading the word of God? If I saw you in church, if I saw you at work, if I saw you at school, in the neighborhood, and if I knew you were a believer, I'd say, where are you eating? What are you chewing on? What are you letting God change in your life through memorizing and meditating? What are you breathing out and begging God to do in prayer? And when's the last time you shared the gospel? See, that's how we stir people up, and that's our job. Uh, and then over here on this side, the theme of Hebrews 
And I'm going to just, just briefly show you the context of chapter 10 because we're doing chapter 11 next week. Okay, and so it's kind of like a big overview of the book. Uh, the theme of Hebrews is Christ is the center of everything. So that's what Hebrews is about. Christ, supreme overall, and he's the center of everything, the center of his word, the center of his creation, the center of his salvation, the center of our life and our eternity. And all of that is what's covered in these 303 verses in 13 chapters. God has only one road, one way, and one plan of salvation, and that's why the only sacrifice for sin is Jesus Christ. And then finally, God has a job for all of us to do, stirring others for him. And that is what I just described over there. Okay, let's go to our slides, and I'm going to walk you through, uh, at, as we sit across the table from one another, week 44, Hebrews chapter 10. What you saw on the board, there's only one, and that's the key word, sacrifice for sin. And then God has a job for each of us that we're supposed to be doing for him. And that's really my heart's desire to share that today. You see where we are? We're on week 44, Hebrews 10, uh, Christ died once for sin. And that is as opposed to human religions. And I'm going to um, cover that uh, very, very earnestly with you about the danger of religion. Now, for those of you that have been with us the whole time and those of you that are just, just joining us today, you are on a survey of the whole Bible. We are using a passage each week, the 52 greatest chapters or passages, and we're learning how to use the devotional method. And that's how to start a lifelong habit of getting something out of God's Word every day. Uh, what we do is we make a title for the passage, we find lessons for the passage, and then we write an application prayer. The title is just a summary of what you read, and it's in your own words, and I would actually recommend you do this for every chapter of the Bible. It will change your life. You can say, I have analyzed what every chapter, all 1,189 chapters are about. I mean, that's greater than knowing sports statistics or every lyric of every pop singer, you know, because it's eternal. But as we're reading, we notice many lessons, truths, doctrines that we can find. And then we use a, a study Bible. Now look up for a second. I'll show you my favorite. And you can read about it down in the uh, description of this video. This is the MacArthur Study Bible. Uh, this is a translation of the Bible. I happen to have the New King James, but you can use the uh, Inter East English Standard Version or the New American Standard. There, there are many versions, good translations of the Bible. But what's special is, do you see this? Over here is the introduction of the book, and then uh, here is a map of Corinth. I mean, I just opened to 1 Corinthians. And over here is a summary of the whole uh, book of 1 Corinthians. And at the bottom are 25,000 footnotes. This Bible is like a complete Bible school education in one little package. And so I carry this with me when I travel. I use it every time I'm studying. I, I look up the background, the context. I love the maps. So I commend that to you. Back to the slides. Then, after we title it and get our lessons, this is, the, this is the key. This is what the devotional method is all about. Write out a prayer where you ask the Lord to unleash one or more of these truths or lessons that you found into your life. That's where life change takes place. Now, I told you we'd survey the whole book of Hebrews. Uh, actually, uh, in our um, one of our websites, we have all the courses I teach. It's, it's uh, uh, another website that you can find at discoverthebook.org. And when I teach through the book of Hebrews, I teach it through in 10 classes, you can see here. And basically, I'm summarizing for you today part of class 7, uh, the Christ-cleansed mind and new life only by his one sacrifice and that's Hebrews 10. Now next week, we're gonna see this, uh, class eight, uh, Heroes of the Faith. But you see this, Christ is the center of everything, the word creation, salvation, life forever. So um, Hebrews chapter one is about God has spoken, are we listening? Hebrews two is the danger of drifting. Hebrews three is how to partake of Christ, how to enter boldly into his presence. 
exercise and anchored living is Hebrews 5 and 6. God offers endless life and we're forever forgiven. That's Hebrews 7 and 8. Hebrews 12 is how to run the race looking to Jesus. And we live for the great shepherd of the sheep, chapter 13. I wish we could cover all of them. But I always do this when I go through books of the Bible, and I'm going to do it for you today. I show you a chapter and verse survey. Now, this is because I've read the Bible enough times that I've got it all marked up, and I've found a lot of exciting things. So here's my Bible, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you over to my Bible and show you these things. In chapter 10, I find great truths in 10.1, 10.7, 10.9, 10.10, 12, 14, 16... See, all these, these are the things that I want to point out to you why this is such an important uh, chapter of the Bible. So look over, look over here at my Bible, and Hebrews chapter 10 whoop, actually starts on this side. There's just a tiny bit uh, down here. So we're in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, and verse 1 says, The law having a shadow. And basically, when I summarize this chapter... Uh, when I read it through one of the times, see, I have several. You see, I have this Bible here. I have this Bible here. I, I just kind of use all of my Bibles that I've read through. But I wrote here, God wants me to do his will. And I get that from verse 7 right here. This is one of the verses. See, you can tell what verses I think are important because I've highlighted them here and marked them and have notes about them. And so I wrote, do God's will right here. That's a theme of chapter 10. And verse 7, then I said, behold, I've come. This is Jesus speaking. In the volume of your book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. And then I wrote here, do you remember what Jesus said in the uh, preparation for the cross in Gethsemane? Not my will, but thine be done. Luke 22 and verse 42. Uh, so Jesus said he wanted to do the Father's will in John 7, 17, John 6, 38, John 5, 30. John 4, 34. So you can see how the more I read, the more, and each color is a different time I'm reading. So I read it through, uh, and the red are what I found that time, the green, the blue, here's the black. And so every time I read, I find more truths that just jump out at me. So verse 7 is important. Look at verse 9. Behold, I've come to do your will. See, God wants us to do his will, and that's what Jesus' desire and verse 10, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. So Jesus offered himself because it was the Father's will. But look at this, once for all. Now, do you see this? I circled the once. Now, see this line? He offered one sacrifice for sins forever. Now, look at this. For by one offering, he is perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Do you see this one, one, one? That's what you saw in the title, the, the sacrifice, the one sacrifice on the cross Jesus made to pay the price for our sins. When he saved us, look at this, I will put my laws into their heart. So we have God written, uh, his word written into our heart. Um, verse 14, by his offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. That's a description of people that are saved. They're being sanctified. Uh, that's wonderful. Now, here's a verse that really means a lot to me. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, back up. I know we're covering chapter 10, but chapter 9, verse 14, really, really um, is what triggered a great work of God in my life. Uh, I was a 20-year-old young man in college, uh, Bible school, and I was uh, memorizing the scripture, and I got to verse 14 here, and this is what it said. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And, and I wrote here, there's a danger of operating with an uncleansed mind. God wants to cleanse us from dead works. He wants to cleanse us from sinful things from our past and from what we run into every day, walking through life. And, and if you remember, he told the disciples they needed their feet washed. They'd already been completely bathed. They were already saved. 
but regularly they need their feet washed. This is a foot wash. Actually, it's a mind wash right here. But look, when the Lord, Hebrews 9.14, when we understand through his once and for all, um, 9.12, sacrifice, and look, it's over here. See, this once is all the way through here, 9 and 10, uh, this one sacrifice of Christ. But look at the result, chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near. So if you don't feel close to the Lord, it's because you need to let him cleanse you from dead works and let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. How? Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. That's what 9.14 talks about. And our bodies washed with pure water. And we hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering. What is that talking about? Well, look up here for just a second. Uh, I call this mind cleansing, or you could call it... Uh, uh, I used to share this when I was a youth pastor, uh, cleaning out the files. You know, when you're uh, getting rid of your computer, selling it or trading it in or your phone, you wipe it, you know, that, that idea of wiping. And, and what it is, is you don't want anything, you know, for someone to, to get your financials or, you know, some personal information. Well, there's something also God is concerned about. He bought us, owns us, but we have to choose to wipe the files from our old life out of our mind. Even though we've been saved, we still have memories. We still have a, what, what are called triggers to past things that we have done, that we have seen, that we have heard, that Satan... Now, do you understand what Satan does? Satan has these fiery darts. So imagine my stylus here is a dart, a very sharp object, and Satan can ignite it. And even though we're saved, he can shoot that dart at us and it can hit these memories, these thoughts, these things we've said and done that we have not surrendered for the Lord to cleanse and clean out of our minds. That's where I was as a 20-year-old student in Bible college. I was sitting there learning the Greek language, surveying the scriptures, and I would be right in the middle of class, and in my mind would flash this, this memory of when I was a truck driver. For two years before I went to Bible school, I used to drive a truck, and I used to back my truck into the loading dock, and I'd jump out, and I'd put my clipboard under my arm, and I'd run up to the desk, and every time... I delivered to the back side of these companies to the loading dock. Now this is in the 70s. Uh, you know, 50 years, I think it's different now that everybody has a phone in their pocket. But it used to be, before phones and the internet and all that, that men would have these floor-to-ceiling, life-size pin-up girls. And so I would come up to the desk and you'd go, whoa, and you'd see that in the distance, so you'd look down and you'd you'd hand the clipboard over, you, you know, you kind of had this kind of, you're aware it's there and you're trying not to think about it. And so you'd, you'd run to the men's room. Well, that was worse. Well, they had many pinup girls there and all the magazines, the pornography magazines were stacked in the bathroom. And that's just how, when I went to Michigan State University and you went into the, the restroom, every wall was, was plastered with what they called pinup girls. You know what God calls it? Pornography. You know what he calls it? Fornication. Thinking of the, the sin of fornication by looking at all that. Well, those things, after years and years of being in the environment, and you, you know, if you're not careful and keep your eyes on the floor, I don't think they ever had any on the floor. They just, it's just residual there. And what happens is it builds up and Satan can shoot a fiery dart. And all of a sudden, you find yourself reliving or some past thing you did or looking in your mind at images. What do you, how do you get rid of those? That's what the scripture is about. The one sacrifice for Christ that Christ made for sin has a component where if we ask him, Hebrews 9, 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God purge your conscience? He can wipe the files. Did you know we can hold, I don't know what it is, 
a quadrillion or an octillion different video files in our minds. And those files can have sights and sounds. And I just read in, in, in the Scientific American that smell is one of the biggest triggers, you know, and some people smell things and they think of everything in the past. Jesus wants to cleanse away those things that fiery darts can ignite. Okay, back to your slides. So that's what is the secret of drawing near to God. That's what chapter 10 is all about. We want to do his will. We want to do his will. We trust his sacrifice. Um, verse 22, uh, we can draw near to him. What I just read to you through the work of the cross and his cleansing. Now, as we're finding all these truths, now look up. Here's my journal. And I'm going to show you my journal. Let me find today, Hebrews 10. So I have my, my title, my summary, my lessons, and my prayer. Let's go through those. Look back at the slides here. Uh, I've typed them out, my journal that I've worked on all week. And I wrote 52 greatest chapters, week 44, Hebrews 10. Here are the different titles. Now, you don't have to do all of your titles. I just do all of them. Drawing near to God. That's the first one I found. The only way to God. That's the second one. Christ died once and for all from, for sin. That was the third one. And then my job for life assigned by God. Okay. Now, here's my summary of the book. The book of Hebrews has 13 chapters, 303 verses. But chapter 10 has two vital truths that we each must heed. Number one, God has only one road, only one way, only one plan of salvation. It centers on the death of Jesus Christ on the cross once. Remember chapter 9 and chapter 10? You saw my Bible. I circled all those one time, one time, one time. He was the Lamb of God offered for the sin of the world. But Satan wants to confuse and corrupt that message. So he invented religion. Religion is humans devising their own way to God. And Satan did that to hide the eternal securing truth of salvation. So right from the beginning with Cain and Abel, think about it. Do you remember Cain and Abel in Genesis 4? It was a long time ago. We were back there in the fall and the temptation, all that to sin. But Cain and Abel, do you remember God told them what he wanted? He wanted a substitute. He wanted an animal slain as an offering brought to him. So what did Abel bring? Abel brought a lamb just like God wanted. Abel offered that lamb as a substitute, as a sacrifice for his sin, which ultimately was a picture of Christ. His, his only sacrifice for sin is the Lamb of God. What did Cain bring? He brought his produce. He wasn't good at raising animals like Abel, or at least finding one, he was better at gardening. And so what he said is, God, do you have to bring an animal? I want to bring, you know, my pumpkin or my squash or my tomato. Doesn't matter what he brought. It was what he devised his own way instead of following God's way. And God said, there's only one sacrifice for sin. Now look back at, at the notes. So that's what Satan invented, is religion. From, it's called the way of Cain. It's doing it my own way. It's coming to God, finding my own path. And it's Satan's lie. And it's getting louder and louder in this generation we live. Everybody says, oh, we want to, you know, find our own way. Okay, second, Hebrews 10 is about our lifelong assignment from God to be constantly looking for opportunities to stir up the spiritual lives of believers around us. It's our shared life with each other and the members of the body of Christ. Okay, Hebrews, look where we are. We're in the general epistles. Now the overview of the New Testament, we have the Gospels and Acts, we have Revelation. Then we have that huge chunk of Paul's epistles. Then we have all those other epistles. But this is something fascinating. Two of Paul's epistles contain the quote from Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. That is also quoted in Hebrews. And that is why some people think Paul may have written Hebrews. But I just showed you that, that uh, Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews all contain this quote from Habakkuk. Okay, here are the lessons out of my journal. I typed them up for you. Number one, works can't save anyone. That's what verses one through four are about. 
Christ is my supreme example. Remember, he came in the world to do God's will. Make sure you mark that. Make sure you highlight that will. And, and like I showed you, it, it's a kind of a reflection back to what Jesus said all the way through the gospel by John. Now here is a central point. Religion is Satan's lie to hide God's free gift. Christ's offering was enough to completely rem remedy our sin problem. That's what it says in verses 8 through 10. Then, remember on the cross, Jesus said it is finished? Well, Hebrews 10, 11 through 18 says, Christ's sacrifice was one time. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, religion says there's, you just have to keep making more and more, kind of like trying to do more good and put it on the scales and balance out your sins. No, Jesus offered one time a sacrifice. Then he sat down at the right hand of the Father because it was finished. Now, why is that so important? Well, how does God compute the cost and payment of our sin? This, and I want to just briefly, and when I'm sitting at, at lunch or coffee, I always turn over the placemat and give a brief overview of church history. So I'll do that with you. And I contrast between human achievement and divine accomplishment, the plan of salvation God has, which is divine accomplishment, and then religion, which is human achievement. And I use all of these verses. So let's just briefly go through that. In Matthew 7, so remember, turn in your Bible here with me to Matthew 7. Make sure you mark this, okay? And that's why these key chapters if you follow through with all this cross-referencing, covers the whole Bible. So chapter 7, and I'm going to really start in verse 21 here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, Jesus is speaking, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, so there are false professions. People who say, Lord, Lord, but look at verse 21. It's not those who say that, but those who do the will of my Father in heaven. You see, salvation is when uh, we want to do God's will, not our own, I wrote right there in my Bible. Jesus said this, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, haven't we prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And Jesus says, mm-hmm, you did. And then I will declare, verse 23, to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Wow, the four worst words ever heard. Wow, I never knew you. Therefore, whoever hears these things of mine and does them, I will liken to a wise man. And, and look at what people said in verse 28. They were astonished at his teaching. They never heard this before. Now back to the slides. In Matthew 7, Jesus explains each of our lives is like one or the other, these two contrasts. Starting in verse 13, Jesus said there are two roads in life, two trees, two relationships, two destinies. Okay, now let's see how to mark those. Look at verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. See, the two roads. You'll know them by their fruit. There are two trees. Uh, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, there are two endings. Therefore, who hears my words and does them, I will liken the wise men who build his house in Iraq, two foundations. So there are, God says, and actually he starts back in, in here, there are two attitudes and two masters and two types of eyes and two banks. I mean, all of the Sermon on the Mount is a contrast. Now back over here to the slide. Everyone you meet is on one of two roads. Their lives are bearing one of two kinds of fruit trees bearing. Now, let me show you that in the chart. There's the wide road, the narrow road. There's the wide gate, wide entrance. There's the narrow entrance. So Jesus says, he says, it is black and white. It's, there's only two choices, me or not me, your way or my way. So if you're on the wide road, then your destination is death. You're surrounded by many people. You're trusting in what you do. Your salvation in your mind is about whether you've done enough. You're a part of all religions. In fact, most people say, well, you know, you have your way, I have my way. Um, 
this is how I was born. I was born following this way, right out of the, uh, the boot, you know, right out of the way in life. I wanted my own way. And by the way, you don't have to do anything to stay on this road. You just kind of float because that's, that's called being lost, uh, following the course of this world, the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air. I, if I'm on this road, I think I have to pay in full for my sins. So I'm always hoping I'm doing enough. And so basically, if you do nothing, if you go with the flow, you'll end up being thrown in the lake of fire, Jesus said. That's the whole Sermon on the Mount. Then Jesus says, this is my desire, that you come on the narrow road. You have a new destination. It's life. You're surrounded by a few. You're trusting in what the Lord accomplished. You're saved by his grace and your faith in that work of God. You only know about this through the revelation of God and his word. You have to be born again. That means get a new operating system. In order to follow this new way, you can only do it with a new heart. The way you get the new heart is you repent. In other words, you have a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. You realize that your sins are paid in full by Christ. So so how do you get the narrow road and the narrow gate and all that? You listen to God's word. You call in the name of the Lord. You repent of your own way. And by faith, you get forever forgiven and forever secure. See the difference between religion? This is religion. This is Satan's way. And this is salvation. So the wide road is the road of religion, human achievement. You know, everybody's on it. The narrow road is the difficult way of Christ and salvation. By the way, were people saved differently in the Old Testament? No. No one was ever saved by offering a, some animal. They offered the animal as a substitute looking forward to a person, a Messiah. And, and they, they had God's Spirit uh, temporarily come upon them, and Jesus was kind of hidden. They never heard of him. It says, uh, Paul said that other generations was not made known to them, but they were looking forward. They didn't really know his name was Jesus. They did know he was the Christ, most of them. Uh, some of them, just like if you remember, uh, like the, the people of Nineveh, when Jonah came and preached to them, all he said is repent and believe in God and, and trust him. So they, they just believed in this one that would take away their sin. But look, here's the cross. In the New Testament, it's the same thing. We have, they had personal knowledge. We have a personal relationship by looking back. They looked forward over here. We look back to what that one sacrifice accomplished. The difference between the Old Testament believers and the New Testament believers is that the Spirit temporarily came and went from them God's Spirit lives permanently with us and reveals Christ to us. And that's what Ephesians says. Uh, He has now been revealed uh, to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, and they have shared it with us. So I saw that in uh, a message, and I liked the way they put it. Church history, though, talks about the inroads of human religion and how it's corrupted. Uh, When I have question and answer, I usually draw this chart, and I'll show you a couple versions of it. I say that Right here is the early church. Uh, It got corrupted until the time of the Reformation. Um, Then we have the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, We have the kind of evangelical church. We have the charismatic group. So the Reformed, the Roman Catholic, the charismatics, and the evangelicals. Basically, that's an overview of all of church history. But this is what I show. I show that the early church right here Uh, had parts of what they believed were biblical. Now, see, this square here is the Bible. See, the Word of God. Within the Word of God, some people are Calvinistic, some people are Arminian. Huh. That's interesting. A lot of people, uh, the Arminians think the Calvinists are of the devil. The Calvinists think the Arminians are of the devil. Yet both of them find their doctrines in the Bible. But look at the early church. This is a part of what the early church practiced that was biblical.
they had non-biblical parts in, in what they believed, which formed into the Roman Catholic Church. By the time we get here to the Reformation, here is the part of what the Reformers taught that was biblical, but they had all this other stuff that was kind of like baggage. Uh, if you remember, Martin Luther didn't like the Jews, and he said, you can kill the Jews. I mean, terrible stuff. Uh, Calvin burned heretics at the stake. I mean, wow. Um, those are things that we shouldn't be doing. Then we get to kind of the evangelical years, you know, the great evangelism of Moody and Tory and Billy Graham, and they had the evangelical church, which all of this is biblical, but look at this. There's so many traditions that aren't in the Bible. You say, like what? Oh, how about Sunday school? Is that in the Bible? Yet some people say, Sunday school is, is more important than church. Well, training people is very important, but Sunday school is not. The gathering of the body is. So you can have these non-biblical traditions that aren't wrong or sin. They're just not on the same level as the Bible. And the same thing is true here with the charismatics. Uh, they have a vast amount of truth, like, like the early church did, like the reformers do, like the evangelicals do. But they also have this extra stuff that, that is outside the scriptures. So here's what, what I say. The early church grew into um, a combination of the truth plus the errors of Romanism that was drifting along till we get to the Reformation, which brought back the truth, but brought even uh, some of their theological drift, like the baptism of babies and covenant theology, and that children could be halfway brought into the church by the parents, and which led to a lot of kids thinking they're saved and not. Then we get to the evangelical church days, and they returned to the preaching of the word, but the evangelicals had this idea that if you uh, pray this prayer, or if you come forward, or if you make a decision, uh, and, and all of those things began to make weaken the evangelical church so that people say, oh, I've done that, I've prayed that, I've got that. And that's why we have so much diversity today and confusion, because most people, see this square in the middle? Most people don't know what the scriptures teach. They know what their guru teaches. If they're Calvinistic, they're Calvinistic teachers. If they're Arminian, they're Arminian teachers. Uh, if they're, uh, you know, kind of uh, over here in the, the Catholicism or the Reformation or mainline evangelicalism or in the Renewal Charismatic Church, all organized religions have the error of works right here. And all branches of the true church have drift traditions and excesses that aren't in the Bible. That's just what we see in the scriptures. And that's what the Lord says, that you should be a Berean. Remember what Acts 17, 11 said? Examine the scriptures daily and see if what you're taught is in the scripture. That's one of the values of church history. It corrects our misconceptions. It shows where the Roman Catholic Church came from. Church history also helps us understand doctrine through the heresies and the controversies. It helps us explain current issues, like I just showed you on that square where the denominations come from. Church history can motivate and inspire. Uh, it, it can teach us about where movements are coming from. It's even very liberating when we look at Ephesians 4 to see what are the common denominators of all true churches. Now, this is what, I was a professor, by the way, at the Master's Seminary of Church History, and this is an overview of church history. There's ancient history, the apostolic age, the martyrs, remember everybody dying in the arena, then the time where Christianity got um, to be legal, and it's called the Byzantine period, where we had actual Roman emperors that were Christian. Then it, it launches into the medieval times, when the Roman Catholic Church is sending out their priests, kind of converting whole countries. Uh, that, that era goes all the way through the time of Martin Luther. Uh, there's the papal era in Europe where the popes actually ran Europe. They had their own armies. There's the pre-Reformation era. You've heard of Huss and Wycliffe and all those famous reformers. And then, of course, we have the Reformation from Martin Luther's theses through the 
what it caused. It caused religious wars. 1648 is called the Peace of Westphalia. That's where Europe stopped fighting and tried to make everybody either Catholic or Protestant. They just settled on their own uh, territories. They transitioned into the modern world that we see today, which um, had state religions, you know, like Anglican in, in England and the Lutheran and Germany and the state church of the Scandinavian countries and the Roman Catholic Church in Italy and Spain. And in 1790, we had the advent of modern missions, and that was with William Carey, and uh, all the way through what we see today, the apostasy. Um, a lot of people wonder where Roman Catholic Church went wrong. It was basically right here when they declared purgatory. Uh, basically, it was a mixed bag from the early church through 590, but the pope, the first real pope, was Gregory I in 590, and he declared that you had to come to the church to get um, you know, indulgences so that your sins could be forgiven, so you could get out of purgatory, and then it just went way away from the scriptures from then on. Uh, with all kinds of things like uh, the money for masses, the Inquisition, transubstantiation, that they change bread into the body of Christ, uh, the Council of Trent that declared anybody that wasn't in the Catholic Church anathema, the Immaculate Conception of Mary, uh, the infallibility of the Pope, the Assumption of the Virgin Mary. Look at how far away from the scriptures they get. Here's where the denominations start. Judaism, Jesus said the truth, and so Christianity was born. There was this one holy Catholic apostolic church. I'm talking about like Peter, James, and John, and the early church. And then it got to be this mixed bag um, that I'm talking about over here. And so then we started having the divisions. The great schism right here broke off the Armenian, the Coptic, the Greek, and Russian Orthodox. Then Martin Luther broke with the Catholic Church, which kept going this way. Martin Luther went this way. Radical reformers went this way. And the Anglicans and the reforms went into, look at this, Anglicans became Methodist, Christian reform, uh, not the uh, Presbyterian, the Holiness Church, the Assemblies of God, and Episcopal Church. That's the Anglican branch. The reform branch here. Uh, became the Christian Reform, the Presbyterian, Unitarian, Universalist, Baptist, Quaker. The Lutherans became, uh, you know, the Moravians, the Covenant, the Free Church, and even this Baptist General Conference. And then the Radicals became the Brethren, the Mennonites, and the Hutterites. That's right there is a summary of the last 2,000 years of church history. I like it. It got on the cover of U.S. News and World Report. It says they went from Jesus into the Holy Catholic Church, into the Orthodox and Roman Catholic Church, into the Anabaptists, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, you know, the, the Dutch, here's a blow-up of it, the Dutch Reform, the Christian Reform, the Congregationalists, the Methodists. I mean, it shows all the branches. Uh, some of you say, well, how can I wade through all this? Well, when I taught at the Master's Seminary, I used... Uh, Earl Cairns, this is my favorite church history book right there, Christianity Through the Centuries. Uh, there's a link to it down in the description of this video. Here is Philip Schaff's monumental work. This is my second most favorite, but it's so long, half of it's in German and Latin and Greek that it's hard for English speakers to use. Here is kind of a very scholarly Christianity Through the Ages. So depending on whether you want to understand it as a summary, like I taught at the Master's Seminary, or you want to be a scholar, or uh, you want to kind of see a modern version, those are three great church history authors. Uh, if you want to study church history through looking at what the Orthodox challenged the heretics of the day, uh, Harold O.J. Brown, he's from Trinity Seminary, he is great. Missionaries, I, I can't say enough, my favorite missionary biography of all is C.T. Studd, Cricketeer and Pioneer. My second favorite is Go Forth of China. Uh, you can also study Ruth Tucker's book, uh, profiling some of the greatest missionaries uh, throughout all time. And even to a modern friend of mine, Todd Arend here, writes about uh, the impact of modern missions on us to this day. Basically, when I'm witnessing I'll say if someone is Roman Catholic, I say, hey, I'm Catholic. I'm just not Roman Catholic. What do I mean by that? I mean this, an ordinary Catholic right here, uh, at baptism, 
they are, they are given their first dose of righteousness, they start a state of grace, and every time they do a venial sin, they get away from God, but they have to go back to confessions and do their penance. But if they do a mortal sin, they go all the way down here to unrighteousness, and they have a long way to go. Probably they'll have to go to purgatory in order to get to heaven. That's a normal Catholic. It's called the gospel of merit. They're trying to merit God's uh, grace. Saints, however, like Mary and all the other saints, like St. Christopher and, and all the saints that you've heard of in the Catholic Church, they were baptized, but they were so righteous that they exceeded what's needed to go to heaven. They have excess merits they get to heaven right away, and all their excess merits goes over here the, into the treasury of merit. Can you believe the Roman Catholic Church designed this? And you can get out of this treasury of merits if you do penance and burn candles. But most people don't do that enough, so they have to go to purgatory, and they enter purgatory at death, and they have to purge and purge and purge until someone applies the church's treasury of merits to their life, by having a mass said and candles burned and purchase an indulgence by a family or friend until finally they get out of purgatory. Wow, that's terrible. The biblical gospel is right here. We are imputed the righteousness of Christ. At our conversion, we're unrighteous right here, headed toward death. At our conversion, when we trust in Christ and change our mind about trying to earn our way, and trust the work of Christ, his righteousnesses were justified. All of his righteousness is applied to us. We're declared righteousness and righteous in Christ's merit alone. Our, our behavior starts being sanctified, but we're always falling short of perfection until the moment of death we're glorified and we go to heaven. But in God's sight, justification means that he sees us as if we're already there so different than the gospel of merit of the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, they try and earn their way up here. They try and keep their way. They fall short. They have to go to purgatory, and they end up there until someone gets them out. This is error. Actually, this is satanic error trying to hide the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ. And so uh, I told you a while back there are a lot of good gospel tracks you can find some of them down in the, the description of this video. Okay, let's finish chapter 10. We have an assignment from God to stir up those around us. And God wants us to draw near, hold fast, and consider one another. Those are the three let us exhortations, verse 22, 23, and 24. We're supposed to fear God's holiness. Remember, don't play with God's grace and mercy. There were some people that said, hey, I'm forgiven, so I'm going to go out and sin more. That's not what grace teaches. Remember when we went through Titus? Uh, Titus 2.11 says, the grace of God that brings salvation teaches us to say no to sin. And finally, chapter 10 ends by saying we have to live by faith. And remember, Romans uh, tells us who are the justified. Galatians tells us how we should live. And Hebrews describes what is faith. And all three uh, use that quotation from Habakkuk 2.4. Before we go, how do we consider one another stir up to love and good work? And that's Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. So my, and, and look up for just a second, because I want to say this. This probably is the single most important thing that I would love for you to learn for long term in your life. I would like you to become an active stirrer of people around you. Not a pest, not, not someone that people hide from, run away from but someone that stimulates those around you to love and good works. How do you do that? I'm going to show you how you talk to people about where they are in the word, where they're meditating and praying about and sharing the gospel. But I'll tell you what, if you go to a small group, if you go to Sunday school, if you go to church, if you're part of a men's group, of a women's group, a student group or whatever, instead of trying to take over the whole group, find one person and just say to them, hey, you know, I've seen you here a lot. I'd like to get to know you a little better. Um, you know, I'm, I'm studying the Bible. In fact, you can say I'm in the 52 greatest chapter study. And boy, this week we're in Hebrews 10. Where are you in the Bible? And you, it doesn't matter what they say. Some will say, oh, I just read the Psalms. You say, oh, 
you remember which one you read? What you're trying to do is establish a point with them where you ask them where they're eating in the scriptures. You tell them that you are. And, and without boring them, you just share that God is really changing my life. I'm learning how to pray and ask him to, to accomplish what I'm finding in the word of God. And I'm actually finding my life changing. I've told you this, but my original 52 greatest chapters of the Bible group, I had um, about 30 men were in 10 small groups. And we would meet every week. On Sunday, I would have wives come up to me. And they'd look around and they'd say, what are you telling my husband? I'd say, what do you mean? Um, they, you know, they didn't want anybody to hear it. They'd say, my husband's really changing. Um, he wants to read the Bible to me. And he's never done that before. Um, he brings the Bible up at meals with the kids there and, and talks to them about if they're reading the Bible. And he says he'd like to read it out loud. He's, he's starting to listen to me. He actually sits there and says, well, tell me about your day. I want to pray for you. And one of the wives went to their husband and said, do you have cancer? Why are you changing so much? I've been married to you for 20 years. You've never acted like this before. Are you dying? Are you leaving me? I mean, women just, these wives just didn't know what to do with these husbands that were changing. Why were they changing? Because they were studying the word of God. They were getting God to cleanse their mind. They were eating God's word, chewing on it, breathing out in prayer, and sharing the gospel, and it was utterly changing their lives. Okay, back to the slides. How do we do this? How do we stir up? This is the, the powerful word, stir up. Whoop, let's go the right direction. How do we stir up others? First, we check on the basics. We go to someone and say, um, we need time listening to God and feeding on his word. That's scripture reading. That's a basic. So you start spending time listening to God. Remember, this is the word of God. When we read it, we hear him speak. And it starts feeding our soul. Then we start marking verses and memorizing and kind of thinking about them, chewing through them, and applying his word. That's, you know, the kind of the conclusion of our study where we ask the Lord to change us. Then we start praying First of all, for ourselves, that the Lord would change, you know, our impatience, our selfishness, you know, our irritability and all that. Then we start praying for those we love, that the Lord would strengthen and encourage our wife, that he would be at work in our children, that he would start convicting these people. Then we start sharing what God is doing in our lives. We just learn how to bring God in the conversation and we share the gospel with them. So those are the basics. Okay. Now, how do we stir ourselves and others? By learning to talk out loud about these things. When we're in a small group, among ourselves as believers, we talk out loud about eating. What are you... See, this? if you're in a Sunday school um, and you have small groups, say, hey, I just have a question for everybody today. What are you reading and feeding your soul upon from God's word this week? Now, look up at me. This is what will happen in your Sunday school class. People will go... No one asked that in Sunday school. I started doing it. I'm the pastor of, I was the pastor of a church. And I, I visited a Sunday school, went to one of the small groups, and I said, hey, let's just go around the table and everybody, in fact, I did it with the staff. I said, everybody bring your Bible to staff meeting when I was a new pastor at each church I ever served. I said, bring your Bible, and I want everybody to open to the last place you read the scriptures and tell us what God taught you. I had people get upset at me. They said, that was a trick question. I said, a trick question? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. If you're alive in Christ, you are eating his word or you're sick. Where are you eating? I know, that's hard. Okay, back to the slides. Ask them where they're, be kind about it. You don't want to turn them away. You want to encourage them. And what you say is, boy, I used to never read the Bible, but I've started and it's changing my life. And so I want to, See if, if God can bless you like he blessed me. And then you start showing them how you're finding verses that you're slowly learning, memorizing, and right here, chewing on and meditating. That's how you change. Remember Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest... Uh, 
For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. You see, meditating and, and chewing on and digesting the truth of God changes us. The other one, uh, Jeremiah 15, 16, Thy words were found, and I did eat them. And thy word was to me the joy and rejoicing in my heart, for I'm called by thy name. Uh, look up here. Thy words were found, and I did eat them. And thy word was to me the joy and rejoicing in my heart, for I'm called by your name. That Jeremiah 15, 16 verse is all about eating and chewing the word of God. Okay, back to the slides. Here's another basic breathing. What are you praying and beseeching God for? That'll show where you are spiritually. And, and I wish I could cover all these in depth, but we're just sitting here for coffee and we only have an hour. Uh, who are you seeking to share the gospel with? Now, why is this so important? Because God said we were never designed to do this alone. That's why we're a part of his body. He wants us to stay connected to other members of the body of Christ. We're supposed to communicate with them and we're supposed to care for one another. That's what this is all about. And the way you show that is you ask them what they're eating, you tell them, tell them what you're eating, what you're chewing on, what you're breathing out in prayer, and who you're going with, and you ask them about that. And you know what that'll do? It'll stimulate them to want to do that. As believers who walk in the Spirit, as Paul said we are to do, remember back when we were in Ephesians, we walk through life clothed in the protective gear God designed just for us. Do you remember our lesson in Ephesians 6? And we walk through life in community with those around us, making sure that they too are making it through the battle. See, we're not just trying to make it ourselves. We're supposed to be reaching out to those around us. We're not alone. We're part of a family. We help each other through the battles of life. Resist the temptation to isolation. Break into someone's life with words from God's word. I mean, it's life-changing. I remember even when I was in secular jobs, people would be grieving and I'd say, could I share something with you from the scriptures? And most of them, 99% would say, yes, yes. And when you reach out, you'll see the wiles of the devil frustrated in their life and yours. Did you know when you minister the word of God, it just ruins the devil's day <laughs> and his hold on people. When we speak God's word, there's power. It's not from us. It's from him who is the word. And that's why we need to be eating and chewing and sharing the word of God. Okay, how did I apply this week? Let me pray my prayer. Lord, your perfect plan of salvation amazes me. Satan wants to hide and obscure and pollute your simple plan of salvation. Religion is deadly, but by grace through faith is simply amazing. I want to live and share and hold on to that perfect sacrifice Jesus made for me. I also want to do your will. I want to draw near, hold fast, and stir up those around me. I can only do so by faith. Help me, Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Two final challenges. I say this every week. If you haven't yet found someone, say, Lord, help me to find someone that you can share your findings with and your application prayer. It'll change your life, especially if you start a small group with them. And then pray for us. Uh, we just finished up the conference that uh, we spoke to virtually through Zoom to all of the uh, uh, ministry and outreach workers in one mission in the country of the Philippines. It's just a joy. Their faces, I can see the group gathered right now, and it was such a joy. Uh, pray for us. We're also starting in the new year uh, courses that we're going to be teaching, um, and, and there's just much to do. But by God's grace, uh, all of us, we can do what he called us to do. Well, before we go, I want to encourage you to spend this week in Hebrews 10. Read it through every day. That's what I do. Uh, I read my last time through this morning. And as you're reading, note what you find. Look up in your study Bible. Try and read those footnotes. Try and follow the cross-references. And then... Write out your applications, the truths, the principles, and then that application prayer where you say, Lord, I don't just want to be a hearer of the word. What? I want to be a doer. May God bless you as you eat and chew and breathe and go. 
as you hold on to that one and only sacrifice and realize you have a job to do for him, you let him clean the files out of your mind and, and not leave places for Satan's arrows to ignite those, those impure thoughts or that anger or whatever you have there. Let Christ be the center of everything in your life. Remember, as you share the gospel, there's only one road and do the job that God left us to do. See you next week. God bless your time in the Word.